Hello and welcome to Ribbon of Memes, episode 29, mm. a podcast where we interrogate films previously described by other average Joes as masterpieces. I'm Nick, and I'm joined as ever by the rugged-looking Roger. Grunt. <laughs> and today we are in 1988... And we are donning our sweaty vests, uh, taking off our shoes and um, being incredibly manly as we discuss John McTiernan's 1988 action horror... F- action horror? I don't know where the horror came from. Action film. Uh, you you haven't watched. seen that cut. <laughs> I watched too many horror films. Um, the, uh, 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 we can cut this bit. <laughs> <laughs> Die Hard. I yeah. don't know why I said it like that. And... I started this thinking McTinnan, obviously a fairly weird person if you if you look up his you know, later life. He's got but, some interesting recent history in there, must be said. But a director of two faces. I mean, anybody could be proud, I think, of having made Predator and then this and The Hunt for Red October and mm. the Thomas Crown Affair remake, which, okay, wasn't perhaps original and inspired, but it made some really interesting changes compared with the original. Now, you, you've mentioned the Thomas Crown Affair a few times. I didn't realise John McTiernan had done the remake. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And, okay. and he, he changed it from, you know, we are we are generic, um, stealing money because it excites us, to we are cool art thieves. It's interesting because he, uh, he, he clearly does... I don't know how much is the script. It's hard to know, you know, with all tears. But I, I, th- I think, basically, we have to lay... M- much of the praise and the blame for films on the director and in this case he went from the possibly the most manliest rugged macho film ever ever made at that time which was Predator which has more biceps in it than (laughs) any other film I have seen short of a weightlifting uh, program that the opening there's an opening they don't even shake hands they do a manly arm wrestle when they say hello um, and one of the opening lines is, this will make you a goddamn sexual tyrannosaurus. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the sort of film we're dealing with in Predator. Only with fewer feathers. <laughs> they don't mention the feathers then, but I, I think that theory was in its infancy at the time. Um, to Die Hard, which was, noted, I think Predator was 87, wasn't it? Was I think so, yeah. But it was certainly pretty close before this. The thing is, here's that, yeah, a, a, a filmography anybody could be proud of, but he also made Medicine Man and the Thirteenth Warrior and Rollerball and Basic. <laughs> um, Basic and, was and his then, last film, I believe. Well, yeah. Th- then there are the ones people disagree about. Uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, which was a great success, but I didn't rate particularly. He, he did not come back uh, no, for the second of these. Well, uh, we can and, discuss that later. Yeah, and Lost Action Hero, which I think is pretty darn good, yeah, actually. I really like Lost Action Hero. A lot of people really hated Hero. at the time, so. Yeah. I yes, I'm not sure quite. This, that's the kind of the meta action film where it sort of steps behind and mm. manage. I suppose maybe it's trying to have its cake and eat. We're not here to talk about that film, but maybe it's trying to have its cake and eat it in that it's sort of critiquing action films, but also trying to be one. I, I think, suppose. Yeah, I think what I'm coming to here is what what John McTiernan does not do is make a film which people say, yeah, it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I think that's fair enough. Um, you uh, you love him or you hate him. Uh, uh, Die Hard. Uh, well, again, spoilers. I love it. It's it's very. I mean, it's widely mm. regarded now as one of the greatest action movies ever made. Um, uh, and I'm not going to argue too it, much. Initial reviews are pretty mixed. But... Yes, they were initially. Yes, but it made made decent money. 
So. Well, so Die Hard, uh, again, as ever, with Ribbon of Memes, there's intense spoilers ahead, so you probably should yeah, watch the yeah. film if you're listening to this. Um, but the, the uh, summary... Hey, the guy survives. <laughs> oh, spoiler. No, Alan Rickman dies at the end. Um, uh, a, a cop is flying to New York to, uh, from New York to LA to meet with his sort of estranged wife. Um, he goes into a party. Yeah, the, the impression I get is they've, just, they've kind of left it, you know, neither, neither they're not actually capable of having a rational conversation mm. about it. We see that in miniature. So we do. I, I think that's what they, again, they haven't actually said. What's happening? They're on their way to separating, I guess, because neither of them but, really but, wants to have the conversation. Yeah, and no, the fact neither of them actually can, said let's separate either. So, well, uh, you know, the interesting straight away the fact that we can draw that out from the film uh, without it being explicitly said perhaps shows you it was a little different to action movies of its time. There's a hmm. nice, there's a nice scene early on. When he's meeting his wife and he's doing the standard uh, macho bluster, she leaves the room and he immediately starts beating him up for what a dickhead he was during <laughs> that conversation, which is not something I think Arnie would have done in his films. Yeah. Um, well, sh- shall we talk more about the genesis of this? Yes, I think that might be a good place to start, given that uh, we know so, this was originally a book, wasn't it? Yeah, a, a book that I don't think many people have read, but. They might have read it since, but possibly they didn't read it. I mean, he was this uh, Richard Roderick Thorpe. Roderick Thorpe, yeah. Thorpe, uh, who, who, was, uh, who had written earlier The Detective, which was turned into... that is a very interesting... So that is a pretty hard-bitten look at uh, the mind of a detective. It goes to all manner of... Um, for the time, unusual place, because it was like in the late 60s. Hmm. Um, it's about... Uh, homosexuality and uh, toxic masculinity um, and it had got made into a film uh, with Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. and, who did very well out of that film. Well, he got great critical acclaim, though the film I have not seen and isn't so much discussed nowadays. Yeah, I mean, this this is late 60s Sinatra, so he was still you know, credible. But He was still credible, yes. yes. Uh, um, and, and in fact, because of that, for, for contractual reasons, because the particular studio had bought the rights to the sequel, they had to offer the part to Sinatra first. But Sinatra was 70 and very wisely, <laughs> I think, said no. Somewhere in an alternate universe, there is a version of Die Hard with a sexagenarian <laughs> uh, Frank Sinatra as, um, as John McClane. I'd be interested to see it, um, but it probably was a wise decision. And yeah, and the reason it was offered, as you say, is that this book was a direct sequel to The Detective, even though it's a very different beast. Yeah, um, well, it was written 12 years later. Uh, yes, yeah, well, it's a, it's a sequel, I say direct sequel, it's the next in the, the, I don't know if there were any more book sequels, I don't think there were to this particular. I don't think so, but yeah. In fact, it may even be implied that the John, I don't think he was called John McLean in the book, possibly dies of his wounds after the book finishes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a very, uh, a, a book that was brought up fairly quickly. I mean, this was the era, the late 80s, when the films were, uh, they were all kind of action hero, buddy cop movies, and kind of studio comedies, as we talked about in our last episode. We've moved away from the aping Spielberg science fiction into kind yeah, of Yeah, because they've done that to the point d- <laughs> to the point where it's a Spielberg esque science fiction film doesn't work even for Spielberg anymore. So. <laughs> exactly. So now we're in buddy movies a la um forty eight hours. Um Lethal Weapon was around this time and uh, uh Arnie is having the peak of his early action career. 
And yes, and Stallone as well. Uh, we're at the realm of Rambo two or three by this uh, stage. Two was up up again. No, no, no. Three came out in eighty eight. Yeah, uh, yeah. They, they were, so we have steroidal, uh, muscly action men, um, invulnerable, shrug off bullets, shrug off most things. And Die Hard was not like that. Yeah, but the thing is, they offered this to Stallone. Mm-hmm. They offered this to Schwarzenegger. They offered it to Schwarzenegger. Turned it down. Harrison to Ford. Um, Burt Reynolds, Mel Gibson, yeah, they got as far as Richard Gere and Don Johnson. And just <laughs> nobody Johnson. wanted to take this part. Uh, but in the end, they offered it to Bruce Willis, who I knew at the time. I remember the general feeling, uh, amongst us, amongst us as, as kids, was that Bruce Willis was that guy from Moonlight. Yeah, that, that was what he was mostly known for. And, yeah, and this and is a also, comedy actor. To, to be fair, when, uh, TV and film were, generally regarded as separate acting tracks. I mean, you could cross over, but it was rare. Yes, like Michael J. Fox had done it, and a limited number of other people. But So, I mean, they they did the cinema school thing, the the studio. Um, So this is where they project how the audience will respond to certain actors. So, yeah, the cinema school is mostly known, I think, as the, you know, this is the feedback you, you show to people who've just seen the film for the first time. And they, they get a, right. they get a form of, you know, A to F grade and, you know, would, would you buy this? Would you rent this? That kind of thing. Right. Okay. Uh, but obviously from that, they can do some data mining and then they can say, you know, we're keeping other things equal. A film with Stallone in it will do this much better than a film without Stallone in it. And that and kind a film of with Bruce Willis in it will not do any worse than a film with no, nobody, somebody nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> it was well, the recommendation they gave him. Yeah, he's but not he's not, not actually going to make it perform worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But on the strength of that, they offered him five million dollars for this role. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I remember uh, there was a big fuss about that. Uh, I think I'd, at, possibly at from the all time, the people who turned it down. I think at the time Bruce Willis is regarded as uh, a bit of a Phil Collins. Type. <laughs> uh, sorry, Phil Collins went through a time of being very unpopular, and I said, th- "Sorry, no, no offense to Phil Collins, but I actually think didn't deserve any of that." Ultimately, um, Bruce Willis was going through a period of not being well liked. I think because he was regarded as arrogant, he didn't do interviews, um, and so the studio gave him five million quid. But as the the release, uh, sorry, five million dollars, as the release of the film approached, they got really nervous about it being Bruce Willis to the point of like taking him off the posters or mm-hmm. at least shrinking his name down, so he wasn't a selling point. I mean, th- there was a time when you go to the film and the words Stallone would be bigger than the title yeah. of the film. And because what people wanted to know was this is the new Arnie, this is the new slide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was uh, not the case. In fact, it was uh, it was really a gamble, um, at least from the studio's perspective. I mean, every film's a gamble, isn't it? But from their perspective, they thought it was a roll of the dice. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what a studio always wants to do is have the sure thing. Mm. You know, uh, as, as we said before, um, what, what they want is the, the thing that's just been innovative and original that somebody else has taken all the risks on, and they want to produce a copy of that with, exactly. a, bank, with a bankable actor. I think you said you want to be the second one. Yeah, By yeah. the third or fourth time, you're you're in diminishing returns. But the mm-hmm. second studio, yeah, exactly. There's often a... Which may be why we sometimes get a glut of films like about Vietnam, like about asteroids hitting the planet. Maybe. Um, but, but there but, we are. Yeah, just, just considering Moonlighting briefly, I, I was never a big fan, though I watched it a bit. Um, he's... You know, he, Bruce Willis there is, is the wisecracking detective. 
Yeah. Basically. And, and he's got comedy chops there. I mean, yeah. He, uh, yeah. But, but it is, it is a romantic comedy much more than yeah. this is action. So. Yes, he had, I don't, had he done a film before? I think he had, and it hadn't done very well, but he certainly hadn't done a big headlining action film, or not one that anyone's heard of, so presumably hadn't done that well. Um, uh, but yeah, we have this action hero who is different in, in ways a little bit similar to Indiana Jones, but Indy was never, I, I don't know if Indy was ever really regarded as a, a uh, that kind of action hero. Well, there, there, there were certainly a lot of imitations of Raiders. Yeah, but, but I think all... I think they were direct imitations. Yeah, yeah, like the Mummy, like Tomb Raider. That's like, they were all sort of historical. Romancing the Stone. Effects. Yeah, oh yeah, of course, Romancing the Stone. <laughs> they weren't they weren't quite your standard action flick. They usually had some element of mysticism or interest. This, you know, Die Hard. There is no uh, supernatural element here. Uh, Except perhaps some of the stunts later in the film, <laughs> but we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, this was a standard action film with terrorists, uh, except they weren't terrorists, uh, which becomes a plot point. They are terrorists in the, um, in the book, I believe. Yeah, I, th- I think that's worth bearing in mind. And th- that, that line about, um, how the corporation has been supporting dictators. Yes. Is actually a very important part of the book. Uh, yeah, the, the, the company that actually is supporting dictators and that is why the terrorists are doing their thing. They are genuinely, uh, that. Well, I guess that's interesting to see from our perspective because this was in a time when you could actually have a nuanced perspective on terrorists and you could understand why some people might sympathise with their views. That has not been the case for about 20 <laughs> years now. And so mm. it's slightly weird to think that they thought terrorists I, I believe the studio changed them from terrorists to thieves because they thought it would, they didn't really want a lot of moral black and white between whether he should be killing these guys or not. And they mm. thought terrorists might be. <laughs> might let, be let, let us not forget Rambo 3 comes out at about the same time as this. Oh, so. right, yeah. Fair, <laughs> point. <laughs> fair point. Um, but that was, uh, regardless, that was the reason the studio changed them from terrorists to, to thieves. But they did it in, or the screenwriter, I think a lot of credit goes to the screenwriter whose name has uh, temporarily escaped Jeb me. Jeb Stewart it, uh, yes, was the he, first screenwriter. Yes, and there were changes since, but he did a lot of the changes from the book. Yeah. And he, because really, he was principally a sort of um, thriller writer, and I think that does come across, you know, this is an action movie, but it builds up like a thriller, and it mm. works as a thriller, um, certainly for the first half of the film. Yeah, um, uh, Stewart didn't particularly have experience in action films as distinct from thrillers so yes exactly and and i think that shows and is to the film's credit Mm. and so from that change that i don't know whether it was imposed on the studio or whether it was his idea but it is masterfully done in that it becomes a plot point that everyone in the film assumes they're terrorists and um uh, we will get to hans gruber very shortly i expect but he plays up the fact that everyone assumes they're a terrorist and uses it to his advantage Mm. um I'll stick with Bruce Willis a bit for the moment, though, because once we get to group, yeah. we're going <laughs> well, to... Alan Rickman, we're going to stay with him. But he was an interesting action hero because he... I, again, there's nothing new about a cop having um, a wreckage of a, of a social life, but it was interesting to have uh, an action hero who... I, you know, his wife hasn't been shot by someone at the beginning of the film. His children, his wife mm. and children are present and correct. He's trying to do his best by them and for them. And he is vulnerable... 
he, he he's, I, he's not... the relatable everyman. And yeah, I, I, I've actually just um, a few, few minutes ago, before we started recording, uh, started looking at a bunch of Arnie films from the same sort of era. Okay, yeah, and you know, every time Arnie is in the film at th- this date, I mean, th- this, this is his action films. As, as we said, he went on to do Twins and other comedy stuff. Yeah, but you know, the first shot is showing this is a big, powerful guy. You do not want to mess with him. This is the guy who everyone looks at when they turn in the room, whereas John yeah. McClane, people barely whereas notice when he walks into the party. He's, he's, he's scared of flying, you know, he, he, he's the everyman. Uh, later on, he stops to look at, look at and appreciate the girly picture he's walking past. Yeah, which is a nice touch, because the reason it works is because you understand that character, you know who he is, and it, it is entirely in character for him to yeah, do Yeah, it, it's sometimes a bit heavy-handed, but it, but it works. Yeah. Yes. He, even though he can still hold his own in a fight against the big muscle-bound guy. But it uh, always feels as if it's in doubt. Whereas, you know, yeah, you, you put Arnie up against somebody, it's not in doubt. They've established enough vulnerability that you know... Now, I will say, towards the end of the film, that does creep into action movie territory you know by the time he's got it's you know it's a big plot point that he's not wearing any shoes mm-hmm. Gruber is smart enough to shoot away the glass um that becomes an issue for a scene where he's picking glass out of his feet and he hobbles a bit for the next scene after that he's, he's not really <laughs> particularly bothered yeah. by it. it's extremely bad he gets shot at one point you barely notice that he does <laughs> i mean we'll talk about the later films later on but i i did feel on this watch Maybe because I was watching it more critically, because I'll admit on previous watches I've just been caught up with the film. I do feel he does somewhat descend into superhuman um, stunts. This is a bit unrealistic territory. Never to the point where it makes me think, oh, forget it then. Uh, And many films have made me think. I I would have liked to hear a bit more of an oof as the breath is knocked out of him by the fire hose thing. Except, yeah, (laughs) that was a stunt I was thinking of in particular, as I was saying. That that sort of stuff. But it's... uh, it works. It works because it spends the time building him up in the first place, mm. um, and does show him. And what I like, it, there, well, there's a nice efficiency here. I mean, I don't know whether it's scriptwriter or director or presumably some combination of it, but every scene has some utility other than the primary one. I mean, you know, when, yeah. when we first see Sergeant Al buy, buying the Twinkies, he's yeah. also putting money in the charity box by the cash register. His it, save it, the cat moment. It is, but but it's one that. Yeah, you're not going out of your way to say, look, look, here, this guy, he's a good guy. You're just saying, yeah, yeah this is just a thing he does. Uh, suddenly, you know, the, the SWAT team, when they're doing the assault, um, they catch on the spiky plants. Uh, yes, exactly. Which, which yeah. you know, should be completely ignored, but they stop and they, and, and that's telling you, yeah, these guys are not really as good as they think they are. Yeah. I, Agent yeah. Johnson, no, no, the other one. Exactly. It, I was it, about it's to funny, say, just, but it's also yeah. It, it introduces it, the idea. I mean, this is a weirdly kind of anti-authoritarian. But well, we should probably mention um, Alan Rickman at this point because I, yes. Bruce Willis is good <laughs> in it. I don't think he's great, frankly. I, I don't get me wrong. I do like Bruce Willis. I think he is genuinely a very good actor who has. But you know, Twelve Monkeys. I think he's amazing in. I really mm. like. Um, Unbreakable, and I really like The Sixth Sense and other films. Here, he's, I mean, he's what he needs to be. I don't know, he's a phenomenal actor, and he doesn't really show, but he charms you. The the part doesn't require him to show a whole lot of emotional range, you know. I am put upon, I am in pain, I'm worried about my wife. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's it. So you, you feel for him. Alan Rickman, um, is almost too good, um, because he is just a, one of the finest villains in cinematic history. Uh, yeah. he's just, uh, he is a murderer. He's amoral. He's quite happy to kill many people to get, just to earn some money. But God, he's got some style. He does. And so also, well. the the thing that occurred to me on on this watch, uh, because I've seen a, quite a lot of films since the last time I watched this, his plan is a caper plan. And yes. If it weren't for the casual murdering, this could be a caper film with him as as the hero. Absolutely. Yeah, you could imagine that the, the scene <laughs> and, and, where and he in is fact, planning I, I this I believe out. D'Souza, the second scriptwriter, did did try to keep that focus in mind. Well, uh, Rick, uh, uh, Hans Gruber, Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber, if he didn't turn up in the film, then John McClane would just have a very boring film, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hans he goes Gruber to the party, the... he reconciles or he doesn't reconcile with his wife. <laughs> he has Christmas or not. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but Hans Gruber is, is the protagonist, or at least he's the motivator of the plot to which everyone else reacts. Um, so he is, he's the, he's the prime mover of the film and he does it in so, and it is not just a simple, as being British and posh, as Jeremy Irons ably demonstrates in Die Hard with a Vengeance. <laughs> um, he's just, uh, uh, how did I put it in one review? I, re- I read of Die Hard with a Vengeance. Like, Jeremy Irons is sour Euro git. <laughs> he's not fit to lick Hans Gruber's boots, which I thought was a bit harsh, but it, there is something about Alan Rickman's performance, and mm. the thing is Alan Rickman, that he, you admire him, you're, his intelligence shines through and the, the, the he film... both has a complex plan and adapts on the fly that that's why i'm is... saying caper film exactly yeah and and exactly as you say you could see this film being you can imagine him planning this thing absolutely meticulously down to the tiniest detail mm-hmm. and still being able to improvise with it which is that perfect scene where where they share screen time together when when um uh, John McClane finds um, Gruber and he just immediately switches into the right character. And you can see him switching and it's beautiful. It's, it's fantastic. Now that that is the... acting craft. Next time I try, it's... I want to know what it looks like. <laughs> yes, I absolutely. And the moment where, when John McClane asks him, and what's your name? And he just says, oh, it's, it's Clay, Bill Clay. And Bruce Willis checks him out. You know that's happened because Gruber has already done that himself, knowing mm-hmm. that this moment is coming. And it is just, there's not like, well, how did he know that? You just know because you know this guy and you know he is easily smart enough to have worked out that question is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, why he's not quite smart enough to check the gun has actually got some bullets in it, well, I don't know. yes, but the, to be fair, for somebody who doesn't know guns, it would be out of character to check that. Mm. Okay, yeah. Fair and, and he's standing right there, it would make a noise. And I suppose the point of the film is to show that John McClane is still as smart as this guy, even if, you mm-hmm. know, his appearances aren't quite up to it, and so he actually wins and outwits Gruber in that scene. Um but the film kind of does it grudgingly. In fact what I like about the film is it's throughout the film it kind of respects competence and intelligence and all of the characters are getting things done not just like you know toughness and gruntiness and it you know all the characters are shown to be good at what they do you know even the point where there's a bit where they're chasing um carl the the um he was actually a, was he a, a famous ballet dancer i think perhaps before he became but carl the the blonde-haired german uh, alexander Godunov, yeah yeah he, he, de- um, he defected in seventy nine. 
it's fascinating. Yeah, I, I really want to read more about his story. But um, there's a moment where he glances down the elevator shaft and sees the light shining out of what, so he knows exactly which vents it's, and it's mm-hmm. just, it's full of little moments like that of people recognizing things. And I know they're all very filmic moments, and I know intelligence doesn't necessarily work like that, but in, within the context of this film and the frame, it's all, you, these people are all competent, they're all good at it, and there's a joy to their competence, particularly and especially with Hans Gruber, mm. but with all of the protagonists in it, and contrast that with, you know, the police and the FBI, who are almost comically stupid. Yeah, um, but, but also, Gruber has read the, the police procedures manual for the sort of thing, the, the FBI procedures manual. And he knows, exactly, so he knows exactly what they're going to do, and they mm-hmm. turn up and, uh, but it and does if, seem if to we have... present this much of a threat at this point, they will regard it as, right, now they've got to talk to us, and that we can get this much delay out of that. Exactly, and, that and this is how long we need, and this is when we'll need them to cut the power, um, whereas they're in, oh, this is a standard A7 situation. Um, and it's brilliant, it's well set up, it's not, I suppose it veers on the side of comically unbelievable, except that, you know, having read <laughs> how some crises have panned out in the past, it's perhaps not quite as unbelievable as I would like it to be. Um, I suppose my slight problem is the FBI is shown as almost um, villainously incompetent, and I think that's a bit over the top. Uh, and I, I suppose I'm thinking specifically at the moment when they're in the helicopter and they're like, uh, we'll probably get 20, 25% civilian casualties. And I'm going, oh, I can live with that. I That pushed against the realms of believability to me. Mm. I don't think anyone would be happy to face their superior. On the other hand, uh, it's Robert Davy, so... I, th- I mean, it was, it's a great... And, yeah, the, just his and, first and, line of... And, and he is a man who can carry that line, so... The opening line of, I'm Special Agent Johnson, this is Special Agent Johnson, no relation. That's just mm. funny. I don't... I don't I, I cannot... I, Again, that goes back to what you talk about economy. It's it's funny and it kind of establishes them as arrogant idiots almost immediately with one line. <laughs> I, I don't know quite how. Uh, it does I'm it. also very very fond of the exchange. Uh, yeah, just like Saigon. I was in grade school, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. Just a little what a little line exchange which shows the antagonism between them and gives you some idea of their previous adventures. Um, yeah, it's it's very nicely played. There was also that um, John McTiernan was allowed for some improvisation, which I was delighted to read included um, the terrorist who sneaks his hand into the, to the chocolate bar um, <laughs> when he's setting up the defence and, and steals the chocolate bar. Also uh, includes the hands, booby, I'm your white knight moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, so Ellis is an interesting character who he bounces a on the screen a bit like um oh what's his name in airplane he's like this zany character um they never the quite blue. show him taking the cocaine but it's very heavily it's, implied. it's, it's pretty obvious <laughs> i mean but, uh, partially from his acting as well but again i think it works because he's an irritating character uh but he irritates everyone he comes across and it, mm-hmm. it works in that way um and, uh, and, uh, I, and in character he's completely unaware of this obviously yes yeah so again that, he's a, a well-drawn um, Though th- th- this is, I think it's worth noting, probably about the last era, last era when you could say a Rolex and not have people laugh at you. <laughs> yes, and expect people to be impressed because the, the big price say- jump was was really happening in the eighties. You know, in, in the seventies, Quartz took over the cheap watch market, and Rolex said essentially, "Holy crap, we we can't compete on this is a good watch anymore." 
we we have to compete on this is a really expensive exclusive watch and <laughs> and here and afterwards they, the prices just got ridiculous but, uh, so, yes yeah. that was a nice moment when he says it's a rolex for the straight fit. i just i wish he'd said it's a casio that would have been, <laughs> <a nice, laughs> been a nice moment um shall we talk about um bonnie um Bedelia, uh, yeah, plays, she has a uh, really hard job here. She does. I mean, again, like all the other characters, she is given a fair crack of the whip in characterization. You very quickly know who she is and what she's about. You very quickly get an idea of hers and John's relationship. But unfortunately, she's got pretty much f all to do for the second half of the film. Well, we've got we've got all this heavyweight establishing McLean as the relatable everyman. You like this guy. You want him to succeed, yeah. and then she has to be both sympathetic and not instantly falling into his arms. Yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> and, and also, not so, and unfortunately, as a woman, you know, she has to come across, I guess, the for me, the Skylar from Breaking Bad moment. If you're a slight antagonist to the hero, you're often hated by audiences, particularly as a woman. Um, so she has a hard, unfortunately, uh, she has a hard job to, to appear like someone who is desirable you know by the end of the film but also antagonistic to him she does uh, you know uh, Marion I, I, has I did feel he, he had more of a relationship with Sergeant Al than he did with her <laughs> in terms it's of what telling, we see on screen that's true it's telling that his final uh, message to Holly is told to Al <laughs> mm. on, on the radio um, and it is a, a moving and a nice speech but yeah um, it doesn't get told to Holly yeah, um, um, Bruce Willis did actually ask for her. Uh, he, okay. he, he'd seen her in Heart Like a Wheel, which is basically the story of a early female drag racer. Um, where, yeah, she, basically what she has to be there is, yes, she will be in love with someone, but she also has to be tough because drag racing is her dream and she's gonna give stuff up to follow that. Right, okay. Uh, so, that, that was clearly a big part of it. I, I gotta say, I would, I would have liked to, alright, I'm, I'm a fan of the Thin Man films. Um. Right. I would have liked to see a sort of inside-outside thing where, where, you know, maybe they're not always in contact, but they know how each other think, and so she knows, okay, this is where he, when he's gonna be here and vulnerable, so I'll cause a distraction over there. Yeah. Or something like that. Just something to suggest that, yeah, they do actually know each other and like each other, even if they're at outs. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think she could have done more. She, she has that one great scene. Yeah. Who, who, who made, who put you in charge? You did when you shot my boss. Yes. That's, that's a great scene, but it is only the one scene. Well, that's it. She sort of paces out and just becomes a kind of hostage towards the, I mean, she's very, she really sells it. It's very good acting when she's watching her kids on the TV and mm -hmm. realizing what that means and trying not to react to it. Um, and Gruber being Gruber immediately picking up on that and working out exactly what was going mm -hmm. on. Uh, but yeah, she, she kind of, uh, is a slave to the, the plot of the rest of the film and unfortunately becomes a damsel in distress. Not, it, it's not even necessary really. You know, I don't know that McLean needs that motivation to end up where he is, but. It's it's a very minor gripe. Um, I mean, it's well, hard to. This is a thing that I think we've may have mentioned before that the way disaster films always need to try to humanise it. You know, it's not enough that our hero is in a position to stop Cleveland being wiped out, but he's got to have his wife there as well. Exactly, his <laughs> wife might die in this explosion too, um, as well as everyone else in the world. Um, yeah, 
So that's a minor complaint. I, I, I suppose they would be my minor complaint that Holly doesn't get much to do in the second half. I I was surprised. The other my other complaint, aside from the kind of increasing superhumanness of the one of my examples, I was going to say was you know that bit when he misses the ducks and catches the later one. Um, that feels a bit unrealistic. That actually mm. happened. The stuntman missed the first one, caught the second one, and they thought that was actually even cooler than we were meaning to film. <laughs> <laughs> and so they kept it in the film. Mm. Um, uh, the, I suppose my the, my other slight issue was the payoff at the end where Carl suddenly leaps up uh, from being... I, t- I don't know quite how he's not dead after being garroted on a chain link for, for however long he's been, but he jumps yeah, up. Yeah, also, then, when uh, you stick somebody in a body bag, you generally don't leave their machine pistol in there with them. <laughs> <laughs> it, it felt like, a, oh, here is a scene where we get to pay off, give Al his pathos. And, it's very much for that, yeah. That, that's the thing. And, when there's a scene that only achieves one thing, it becomes very heavy-handed. It's it's when D'Souza presumably has got has managed to get it so that a scene does two things. It feels economical. Yes, as I you mean, say, uh, uh, much earlier when, when he's first going into the building, he got all that faff with the reception system, which is yes. there um, from a script point of view to say, right, this is where he learns that his wife is using her maiden name. Yes. And it's, if you think about it for a moment, it's just completely pointless because, as the reception guy says, the only people left in the building are on the thirtieth floor. So yeah, I don't know. What, I diegetically, <laughs> there is no need to do that at all, but it needs to be there because it's to give that bit of information. I, I would be annoyed with the receptionist. Why, why didn't you fucking tell me that? <laughs> but I agree, it would have made less. Um, I, I wanted to go back to the owl thing though because it opens up a criticism of the film, which. I do think I agree with, but perhaps slightly misses the point of the genre, and that is redemption in this film is earned through violence. You know, mm-hmm. Al, uh, who is traumatized by killing a, I forget, it's 12, 13 year old kid, um, redeemed himself by killing a much older man. <laughs> um, uh, mm, and I would argue that's not quite what's happening there. Okay, what, what's your take? Um, as, as I see it from, from the dialogue, because he shot the kid, he feels unable to draw his weapon, and yes. therefore can't be a street cop. Because yes, and actually, that's a, that's obviously a thing a street cop has to do all the time in the states. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Let's um, not go there. Um, but because of that, he he has got on to the desk job, um, and because he has broken through this by drawing the weapon again, the strong implication is he will now be going back to be a proper police. I, I completely agree. So I wouldn't with, call it redemption in quite the same way. But it is still achieved through violence, and that is oh, not yeah. the only instance but of that in this if, film. If, if your problem is, I cannot shoot people, then you, <laughs> pretty much the only way you are going to demonstrate that you've got over that problem is by shooting people, I feel. I mean, some people might argue that's not a problem. And some <laughs> other people might argue that um, actual uh, administration is a vitally important part of even a paramilitary organisation. <laughs> but um, but that's... Your yeah, police got themselves an RV. <laughs> <laughs> and the quarterback is toast is another um, improvised line. Um Oh, it's, oh, this is lovely. I mean, I but it, it, it's kind of dispiriting, critic- actually, that Clarence Gilliard, Theo, uh, yes. Clarence Gilliard Jr., I should say, uh, the next two films he made were over ten years later, and they were left behind one and two, which is you know, oh. your, your toxic, apocalyptic Christian stuff. Why didn't he get roles after this? I don't know. He was really good in it. He was originally 
meant to be killed by John McClane but the, they rewrote the script towards the end um, well actually the, the, one of the things they did was insert the, the Gruber and McLean scene where he be- becomes mm. Bill Clay and they had to re they had to jiggle about that a bit um so he couldn't see who actually killed um uh not Nakatomi it's um to t- I'm thinking of Takeshi's castle which is all um <laughs> no, Takagi Takagi um and I think somewhere in that jumble they had to rejig the ending mm. so that rather than get killed by McLean Theo gets uh somewhat I don't know, slightly unrealistically beaten up by Argyle, who... To to be fair, a, a car crash like that is a very disorientating thing. I mean, whether Argyle would be capable of overcoming that faster than Theo, we don't know, but... Well, actually, he genuinely punched him as well, which yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, but but the only reason he can punch him is because he's disorientated from the crash, I feel. No, I mean, I mean the actor actually punched the other Oh, fair actor. enough. <laughs> by mistake. The, um, the other but... thing is that that whole section was, was a late addition. Um, the yes. ambulance subplot. Uh, because if you notice when they're first getting out of the truck, you see inside the truck, and not only is there no ambulance in there, it's clearly not big enough to take one. It's not big enough to fit. I suppose but, but they I... couldn't refilm that by the time they'd added. By the so yeah, the ending was uh, it wasn't hugely different, but I I just felt Argyle. I suppose he has heard what's gone on on the radio. Yeah, I suppose it just I, it didn't strike me as someone who would drive his limo into someone, but it was. I felt. I suppose also it's perfectly drivable afterwards. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I, I just felt at that point in the film, from the moment Gruber falls out the window, it just becomes uh, right. And now we have to have Argyle's payoff, and now we have to have Al's payoff. As, as I understand it, Argyle to... pretty much vanishes from the book relatively early. I mean, he is in the yes. book, but he's not, he's not a significant character. It felt slightly filmmaking by numbers, ever so slightly. I mean, the, mm. I, I'm going to prefer every criticism that comes up in my mouth during this podcast is trivial because I think this is a great film. <laughs> I, I think it works. It just well, it grips me. I think whether it's the editing or not, I don't know. But because of the because of the economy of the editing and the storytelling, and because of the rapid characterization. As as ever, you know, these characters are all two-dimensional. They're not nuanced. You know, we don't really understand why Gruber, efficient and wonderful as he is, thinks it's okay to kill all these people. We don't know why he's in his past. He does seem to have been a member of a terrorist organization. Mm. It doesn't matter, because we know what they're about in the film. You know, this is the villain, but he's smart. This is the good guy. This is the... It's just well... It's uh, it's well acted. Um but I do feel, yeah, my my only issue with the pacing is it progresses to slightly ridiculous levels towards the end of the film. Mm. Only slightly. It, it's but, getting uh, there, I agree. Oh, we have a, uh, we haven't mentioned our old film, uh, Paul Gleason, uh, the principal from uh, Breakfast <laughs> Breakfast at Tiffany's. That's not right. At the Breakfast Club, who mm-hmm. again appears in his somewhat. He always appears in vaguely authoritarian bad guy. Uh, yes, yeah. He's also um, Clarence Beaks in Trading Places, as I recall. Which is a, I mm. love Trading Places. Yeah. Maybe we should do that sometime. Yeah. Um, but he he turns out to be he's sort of a baddie, but not quite as bad as the FBI is, and ends up as a sort of semi. Well, he, quite... he he's the one who's entirely focused on on the, what the PR is going to look like, basically. Yes, exactly. And we as, have as this... well as showing you what the LAPD book says you should do in this situation. Well, I do think there Al's interaction with him, like Al is a street cop, and this guy's the chief of the LA police. I mean that that interaction they have, 
that's not that wouldn't happen i i don't <laughs> he's so rude about him all the time i mean again it, it some of the outside interaction feels a little unrealistic i mean it's all it's all heightened and unrealistic but it takes me out of it a little bit um mm, with yeah. that th- with the interaction al gets to do it because he's kind of a he's almost like a holy fool type character you know he's he's very wise um, but even though he appears kind of slightly bumbling at first, um, well, one can't help feeling that the the way this would go, obviously ignoring later sequels, uh, would be, yeah, M- McLean is going to move to LA, obviously, and then he's going to become an LA cop, and obviously Al's going to be his partner. Uh, I yes, mean, it would it, just have to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it didn't happen. Um, but it's certainly no worse than many of the other sequels um, that came about. Now we, we've probably, I think it's fair to say we both, uh, explicitly said we rather like this film. I, I thought it'd be interesting, and we've probably done it already, but specifically break down what it is about this film that is different to the other action films of the era, and why wasn't this film just one of those? Is that, is that worth looking at? I mean, what is I it that so. makes I mean... this film work in a way that the others not didn't, but why does this one stand out as the greatest action movie of the time? The thing that has struck me, I don't, I don't know about greatest, but the one that is not more of the same. Uh, yes. And, and I think that is very much down to the way McLean is both characterised in the script and portrayed by Willis. Yes. Um, this is an ordinary guy. I mean, Arnie would not forget to pick up his shoes. No, no. Uh, and it sounds faintly ridiculous to say it, but it actually it works well. There, and even there, even there, it manages to ring some humour out. Like when he kills, oh, is it Fritz? And he says, hmm. <laughs> or nine. I don't know where he gets his figures from, but I think he says nine million terrorists in the world, and I kill one with feet smaller than my sister, <laughs> which is a yeah, is a nice now, moment. Now, arguably, he should have been t- trying to take shoes off all the other guys he killed, but that he could. <laughs> but that is enough for us, isn't it? Yeah, um, I think that's it. I mean. Hmm. The the first Arnie film I saw was Commando, which I think is eighty five, and to to me that has become the the pattern, and I enjoy it a lot. I still enjoy it a lot now. Hmm. But this is not that could be me. That is this amazing guy can do these things because he is an amazing guy. Yes, and I and, and, the, and S- the claim is yeah that could be me. All right, you know if if I were a cop and very experienced and all the rest of it, but it the implication is this is a regular guy, not this is a superhero. I think Die Hard w- w- um, goes beyond that to the point where you you start to think actually this guy is even he, he, he's doing more than it gets to a point where you realise he's even more than just your average guy, and I don't think that's to its detriment. But I agree, like in films like Commando, it's like. These are the things we have to throw out to even threaten this guy, whereas John McClane is threatened by broken glass, and um, it just works quite well. It is also, mm. as you say, very economical and very well edited, and doesn't give you much time to think about the plot holes. And they're not huge plot holes either, yeah. and compared to some of the other films. I mean, they, they are there, but they're not... Uh, they're not quite fridge logic. You, you, you'd have to think through the situation, and, um, and quite often there, there are things like like the, the thing we were just saying about yeah, Hans should have checked checked the that the gun was loaded, but there is actually a reason why he might not have. Yes, it's it's believable, and it also serves to you already know and 
uh, much as you don't want to like Hans Gruber and respect him, and so the fact that uh, John McClane can outwit him is is a, an interesting point in the movie. Um, this does have one of my least favourite filmic, filmic cliches. I think I first saw it in Ghostbusters, though it may it may well be earlier than that. Uh, the the way you say that this is a room full of effete non-action hero people is to play classical music. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. That's. Uh... If somebody mentions a nice aged Brie, well, you know, he's not not long for this world. <laughs> <laughs> it also, speaking of Ghostbusters, it has um, uh, Walter Peck himself. We have um, William Atherton, who slightly specialised in these kind of slightly slimy <laughs> characters, though. Walter Peck was right. You probably shouldn't have a safety grid, a safety net. If you built a laser grid, um, but there we go. Well, at least um, a UPS or something, yeah. In fact, Walter Peck was absolutely right because when they turn it down, the whole city gets overrun by <laughs> by ghosts. Um, but that's a different film. Um, but yes, it's nice to see him in a, as a slimy. T- I think, yeah, the economy of the script. The uh, I wouldn't say the acting of Bruce, Willis, but he certainly has. Presence well, I, w- I would say the acting in, in the sense that he takes the words that are written on the page and he makes them into a character. It, 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 it's it's yeah, not yeah. it's not the line reading part of the acting, but it is still acting. Exactly, and we like Bruce Willis genuinely can act and has done in other films. I, he's not stretched so much here, but he does what he has to do. Who does? And what, what uh, I'm sure McLean would not agree with, but I, I think one could regard as an ethos here is his strength is as the strength of ten because his heart is pure. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's um, how he wins. When I mean, the other big reason uh, the the Englishman in the room uh, is that <laughs> you know we have Hans Gruber and we have um, uh, Alan Rickman as who does you know if if Bruce Willis does what he needs to, Alan Rickman goes above and beyond. He just mm-hmm. is, he really does make the film, and it's hard to imagine it. Another Gruber, and, and as I say, you know, Jeremy Irons tried the same shtick in Die Hard with a Vengeance, which just, it just falls flatter. Now, that might be because the script serves him less well. Um, I may have some personal. Now, now here's, here's the thing. Uh, this was Alan Rickman's first film role. That's amazing, isn't it? He'd he was, done he was TV a, and a lot of theatre, obviously. Broadway but, actor, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. But this made him, uh, from then on, he was, uh, he was in a lot of, uh, his other standout performance for me, though, would probably make him sad to know it, um, would, would be Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Well, that's actually in my, in my notes as, yeah, so it's three years after this. Um, but another film that would have been mediocre without him and yeah, became absolutely. better because he was in it. Though th- there, I don't think he did quite such an effective job of bringing everybody else up to his level. <laughs> No, I agree. It's a more comedic turn, and it's slightly self-parodying, parodying, parodying even by that time. But he's still bloody great in it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, Alan Rickman, another reason why it's great. In fact, all the actors in here are doing a great job. Um, I don't know if there's any weak links in Th- there's there. There's nobody um, who doesn't convince me, yeah. No, exactly. And and the story, it rattles along. It's And you're trying to... It's It's that perfectly paced plot of... It's not like uh, it gets ridiculouser and ridiculous. You're trying to follow along what's going to happen, and the plot is just a few steps ahead of you or a step ahead. And mm. so you're never confused particularly as to what's going on. 
And it stands um, up to rewatching. I mean, we've both, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming, have seen this several times. Yes. To, yeah. to put it mildly. Um, well, it's now regarded, I mean, we're watching this in January for somebody, it's now regarded as one of the greatest Christmas movies um, ever as well. Well, um, it's a great I, film that is set at Christmas, so yeah. Exactly, yeah. Which is good <laughs> enough for me, for sure. Um, um, but but what, what I was going to get to is, even if you know and remember all the details... It's still fun. I mean, it's not going to surprise you anymore, obviously, but it's still, you can see the bits being set up and clicking together, which is, it yeah. is enjoyable in itself. I would, it, again, it probably passes my test of, I would watch it again. It, it's not, um, I, I would watch it again, you know, after the credits roll. Probably not immediately, but I wouldn't be unhappy to watch it soon. Mm. It's, um, sort of inclusive for its time. I mean, the main characters, uh, Rickman and McLean are, you know, both white guys, but we do have, you know, prominent, several prominent black actors. We have, um, a number of Asian Americans or, uh, it, the, the, there is a diversity to the cast, which is mm. perhaps something that we haven't seen before. Uh, well, well, more to the point, I mean, Takagi is, is the main, uh, Asian character we see, but he is not a stereotype of I will be honorable. He, he is just a competent businessman who happens yeah, to be and- Japanese. And nor is he the stereotypical evil businessman. I mean, he's almost uh, stereotypically, I don't know, uh, trying to sell me as a, the head of a big corporation as a noble, <laughs> you know, where he says, actually, we, uh, despite what you may have read, we're actually going to develop their interests in, uh, oh, right, really, okay, I'm sure you understood, <laughs> uh, but that may be my cynicism. It works perfectly for the film, and he comes across, again, he comes across, yes, Takagi comes across as a, uh, uh, a, he's a trying to keep his people alive. Car- exactly. And so you care about it when he's killed. Um, and you understand Bruce Willis's reaction. Mm. It's, oh, it's, it's well done. It's, I mean, it has flaws, but as an action movie, uh, it's close to perfect. It's pretty darn good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, inevitably, of course, there is a Rogers Guns corner. This is actually a positive one. Um, Goodness me. They, they, we they, can have an aviation corner as well in a moment. Let's yeah, see the there's, there's not much to that. Um, okay. But yeah, I mean, they they couldn't get actual MP5s, uh, so they used HK94s, which are the semi-auto version that HK produced for the American civilian market. Um, right. But they are clearly meant to be MP5s. And uh, the, the, I think it's Carl has a Steyr AUG... Uh, and both of those are both moderately distinctive. Right. And not the sort of thing your typical terrorist would be carrying. It, it is more information that says, this is actually quite serious, expensive hardware. This is a cut above your typical, yeah, a is bunch that of AK-47s. The, the, the sort of the very long, slim barrel that you uh, and, and the curving hand grips is the style. Oh, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. That is just, you're right. Yes. That helps to, they're a professional, Outfit. So even though nobody points this out in the film, it is clearly one of the things that McLean would be taking into account when he's giving that report of, yeah, these guys seem to know what they're doing. Yes. And you, again, it's it's a good film that established, with a good film, when there's plot holes, or not even plot holes, but bits that aren't explained, you fill in the gaps with the information you already have. Um, and so you don't think it's a plot hole mm. in exactly that way. And that's uh, that's... A sign of a good film. Shall we briefly talk about the sequels and why we're just doing this as a one-off yeah. rather than a die-hard franchise? Um, yeah, I, I have seen two and three, and I quite enjoyed two. 
<laughs> yes, that is my experience too. Um, I mean, uh, I, I have to, yeah, this, this is Roger's Aviation Corner. Instrument landing system does not work like that. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> that, that's for a different, the, the, the reason for me Die Hard still works is because it remembers the reasons that made John McLean an interesting action hero in the first place. He remains vulnerable. He remains scared. He, he's got a sense l- of humour. Even yes. though horrible things are happening. He, 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 he is noticing just as the audience is, hang on, this seems awfully familiar. And for him well, not it, to comment on it would, would be forced. So he comments on it, but he makes a exactly. joke out of it. Exactly. We have the, the, the slightly weary, uh, I feel nowadays, but the, how can the same shit happen to the same guy twice? But it's, it worked. I mean, you can't use that as a catchphrase in every film. How can the same <laughs> shit happen to the same guy four times in a way? Um, but I agree. It, he, he, I mean, for most of the second film, as I recall, he's saddled with a kind of grey big dad cardigan. Um, <laughs> and so that's an interesting look for an action hero. Um, it's good. Die Hard 2 is, it, it's different enough that it is interesting. It, it has it, a few it's more not great, plot twists. But it, yeah, it, it does have that, well, that, that key plot twist. Can we talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Stop now if you haven't heard any, seen any more Die Hard films. Um, that, that, you mean... that, that, that the SWAT team guys this time round are in fact in league with the bad guys and that, that is how they're planning to, you know, stage the big battle and escape. And it's, and, and it actually ventures in, yes, uh, that moment where they're all like shooting blanks at each other and, and the realization of it, that's it, yeah, it's, um. And that, that works for me. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it rattles like, who was the director of Die Hard 2? It wasn't John Hart, John um, McTiernan, was it? No, it wasn't. It, sorry, I've asked a Google question, which is not great for the internet. It was... Rennie Harley. Um, oh, Rennie Harley, okay, yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> um, Rennie Harley has made some remarkable garbage. Yeah, certainly. But he made Die Hard 2 as well, so it wasn't all bad. Um, and Cliffhanger, which with... I've heard good things about but haven't seen, to be fair. And then Die Hard with a Vengeance is when I utterly lose interest in the franchise. Yeah. And that's John McTiernan that, returning. back, but yeah. Um, one of the reasons I didn't like it is we have no Holly anymore. Bonnie Bedelia? Bedelia. Bedelia. Um, didn't want to come back for a third helping um, of, of the... Um, um, we have, I've mentioned a few times, we have Jeremy Irons. She, she does get is, to do a bit more in two, to be fair. She does. So in two, she's present, and it, in a way, it feels a bit like a rerun, but the villains aren't trying to be the same as Hans Group, but they are hmm. not as memorable. Um, but they are, they're, they're different and interesting enough that, I mean, part of the reason Die Hard 2 isn't as good as Die Hard 1 is because we don't have Alan Rickman yeah. in it. Um, <laughs> Die Hard with a Vengeance, I don't want to be mean on Jeremy Irons, though, that, Dungeons and Dragons film was bloody awful. <laughs> you were, <laughs> Jeremy, you were really phoning it in, my God. Um, but, uh, it's just, he, trying to be Alan Rickman, uh, is probably, uh, I mean, it's a job that was already taken for a long time. So, mm. I mean, um, it, it just doesn't work. And it's much more open, which I understand. Yeah, I guess the idea was to flip it on its head, because there was a time when it was like, a lot of, I guess, executives got pitched a lot of, it's die hard, but on a boat. It's die hard, well, but the, on a the, train. The, this calls forward to, to our uh, masterpieces uh, thing. This, this was pitched originally as Rambo in an office building. 
Mm. <laughs> um, but so it, from then on, it it's definitely die became hard, but... die hard on a X, Y, or Z. Yeah, it's people in difficult circumstances in an enclosed situation. And actually, you know, both of the Die Hard in a Boat became that Steven Seagal film that I forget the name of, um, Die Hard on a Bus. Under Siege. Under Siege, exactly. Die Hard on a Bus became Speed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably was Die Hard on a Train. Um, Probably. (laughs) Probably. Anyway... (laughs) But yeah, well, I, I suppose that answers the question. Well, uh, if we, I mean, neither of us have seen Die Hard four or five, um, yeah, and have no interest in doing so because the problem, the classic problem, he, he became, he stopped being the vulnerable action hero and just became like every other action hero. Whereas, um, um, lo- looking at action films immediately following this, uh, uh, I don't think anything got actually abandoned, but your your big beefcake action film really fell apart after this point. Now that people had seen, you can have a relatable character in the lead as well. Well, that one of our questions we ask in uh, is this a masterpiece? Is was this influential? And oh goodness, yes. I mean, we just talked about how everything was diehard in her from here on in. Mm. A- it a- absolutely impacted the careers of beefy muscle men like Jean Claude Van Damme, Schwarzenegger, Stallone. Um, yeah, they, they but, all... but also Alan Rickman and other British actors who who, oh, yeah. who got to you know all of a sudden they they yeah it's the usual Hollywood thing as we've said you 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 imitate everything about the film that succeeded uh, yes and one of the things they tried to imitate was, was the you know rather than you know, either bland or eccentric lo- loonies there, there was a call for villains who were you know, educated and intelligent and so on classically educated particularly uh, but, <laughs> but yeah I mean there were many uh, I mean there were many imitations of Die Hard um, all these Die Hard on a dot 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 type films mm-hmm. it changed the nature of action heroes you know the people well Alan Rickman and Bruce Willis had owe their careers to this film um, yeah. Yeah. I think um, John McTiernan <laughs> um, ended up in prison for some. Well, on, on, off the back of this, he got to make the Hunt for Red October, which has its problems, but I would say is pretty good overall. It's the best of the uh, of the Tom Clancy films that I've seen. For sure. <laughs> um, I don't really know what the Tom Clancy brand means anymore. There's a lot of games with it. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, but it was without question very influential. But, I mean, uh, yeah. the the, the modern was die hard on a mountain. Uh, Air Force One was <laughs> Die Hard on a Plane. Exactly, <laughs> yes. And interesting, you know, Cliffhanger was Stallone, but I, I bet he was playing a more nuanced character of the steroidal type. Air Force One would be Harrison Ford, and again, it, was that a Tom Clancy one, Harrison Ford? Uh, uh, that one wasn't, I think. Um, but but I, I think it would be fair to say that the, this had a, lasted for, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years? Uh, until uh, you started getting CGI being affordable in the in the mid to late nineties, and then then that yes. brought on I think a new genre, new era of action films at that point. Well, action films to me now, which I haven't really kept up with, because honestly, it's not my genre especially, but seem to be I, I guess with the era of like John Woo and that sort of um, violence as a ballet, violence as a dance kind of thing. Um, which I think the John Wick films are very much a, a, again I've, to my shame I've not seen any of the John Wick films I would like to give mm. them a watch but um, there seems to be a, a, a type of action film that's all about the the kind of uh, dance of violence um, and then yeah also... I, I, I think that's the Hong Kong influence primarily but, yes. yeah yeah and, and John Woo and those kind of directors but also there seems to have been a bit of a full circle in that we also have 
action heroes like uh, Jason Statham and The Rock now, though mm-hmm. they are often they're still not quite as full on obvious male uh, biceps <laughs> delivery <laughs> devices. They're um, they have a they often undercut that image with a sense of humour or. Uh, it's it's slightly different to how it was in the 80s but there is a genre of that type of thing the rock in particular i mean that's incredible amount of charisma on that on mr yeah. Jack johnson's uh, soldiers but um that's for another time i guess but they're, they're the kind of action heroes we have now and i think all of that has been influenced by this film in some way or another and then has evolved on from there but much as we said with breakfast the breakfast club um becoming the standard um uh, high school film, Die Hard really became the standard action film that you had to deviate from if you hmm. wanted to. I, I think so, yeah. Uh, and many people didn't even bother deviating from it. Um, the sad thing about <laughs> yeah, John uh, McClane Bruce is, Willis at one point claimed he had been he had been pitched a film Die Hard, but in a skyscraper. Uh, <laughs> and his comment was, "Yeah, I think it's been done." <laughs> I think that one's done already. Um, Interestingly, when they did Die Hard, um, the screenwriter was like, um, well, no one's ever going to believe a 60-year-old action hero. Nowadays, as we are at the area where most of our old action heroes from the 80s are in their 60s, 70s and 80s, we seem to be getting a lot of action films where we have mm. 60, 70 and indeed 80-year-old Indiana Joneses. Um, but never mind. Not that I'm ageist particularly, but I don't see a lot of 60, 70 or 80-year-old female characters from that era um, mm-hmm. in quite the same way but yeah. there we go well, anything Hi-ho. more you'd like to say about Die Hard uh, the, uh, as a franchise, as a film as a franchise that was probably an error but yeah. um, let, let, let's you know, hark back briefly to, to the uh, novel which uh, it's, not his, it's not his estranged wife, it's his estranged daughter uh, who dies <laughs> Right, that's, uh, uh, and there's, there's a strong suggestion that he may be dying as well. Yes, I read that too. Nothing lasts forever. The film, which uh, you know, if the Bond writers are running out of more <laughs> more titles, <laughs> that is a great title for a Bond film. Uh, I, I would like just to make a t- make a technical note. Um, obvious, yeah. This, this is obviously a very practical effects heavy film. Um, yes, the 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 damaged uh, plaza they did with the scale model, that kind of thing. Um, the technically most demanding shot, according to the DP, uh, was Gruber's death scene. Oh, now this, I read this, this was because he was they actually had to drop him 30 odd feet. Onto his back, which is a stunt, uh, stuntmen are trained not to do because it's very hard to fall properly if you do. And the, the camera couldn't keep up with him focusing. Yeah, in well, time. basically they, they, at that point it was mostly manual focus. Yeah, uh, and the, uh, the, the camera operator couldn't. Uh, so, so they set up a computer rig, uh, and even that, the, the original shot was actually going to be longer. But he, but you start to lose focus towards the end of it. So they used what they could, and did it in slow mo. The other yeah. thing I read was they said, "We're going to drop you on three, Alan." Right, one, and then they dropped him <laughs> to get <laughs> a genuine look of surprise out of it, which I think probably worked. But uh, yeah, it, it really works for me. Um, yeah, it's not perfect, yeah. but I, it's I don't not ask got a lot to, to say perfect. about the human condition. Or to, but as we <laughs> go through ribbon of memes, I start to feel the films that do try and say that I often disagree with <laughs> strongly. The films that don't try um, 
and don't pretend to... I suppose the one thing we have said is films that I have really enjoyed are films that don't particularly touch... uh, don't particularly have much to say about other deeper subjects, but touch on them in a way that they acknowledge that they're there. And I'm not sure Die Hard does that, but it doesn't really have much to say about the wider world at all. The the most it does that is in the the characterisation of Gruber, I think. Yes, yes, and his, because he is a man who has understand how the world fits together. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not going to begrudge it for that, because I still rather like it, and I will watch it again, I'm sure, um, which is more mm. than I can say for Die Hard with a Vengeance. I, I will watch Die Hard 2 again, in fact. Yeah, I'm tempted yeah. to watch it again, having watched Die Hard now. Um, but after that, the franchise is, is dead to me. Yeah, it, it's a shame, but... Um, to, to be fair, at least it doesn't, you know, retroactively ruin the earlier films, which we've suddenly talked We're about. We're looking at you, Alien that. 3. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we are. I believe we've come to the other, uh, to the other end, to the end of a Ribbon of Memes podcast. I think it's time to blow the roof and escape out of the basement um, while everyone is sifting through the rubble and trying to work out what's going on. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne. <laughs> Yippee Kaye, ribbon of memes. <laughs>